right. Is the Bible trustworthy? Tonight we are going to be talking about the inspiration and the authority of Scripture. And this is what we said uh, this course would be. Uh, this is how I framed it up. In one way or another, human beings have been struggling with the authority of God and His Word since the beginning. And the struggle seems all the more intense in our current cultural moment, doesn't it? We feel that. We, we feel the, 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 the intensity when it comes to our commitment to the Word of God. And so we want to think more clearly tonight about the nature of inspiration and authority. I like to use quotes. If you don't know me, if you've never heard me teach, I like to use quotes because uh, I'm a firm believer in when you can't put it better than somebody else, then quote them. And I also think it's important for us to see that the things that we think as Christians, the things that we embrace in terms of the Christian faith, they are not only global in terms of what the church believes around the world, but also historic, what the church has believed. In other words, the wisdom of the Christian faith and the, the, the doctrine that we embrace together has been forged over long periods of time by people from different cultures who are able to help us to articulate and sharpen our thinking. So we stand on the shoulders of giants. Augustine of Hippo, the African church father, one of the most important thinkers in the history of the Christian faith, says this, if you believe what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it's not the Gospel you believe, but yourself. Adolf von Harnack, who was a liberal theologian, had enough uh, wherewithal to be able to say this. There has never existed a strong religious faith in the world which did not at some decisive point base itself upon an external authority. So these are, here are the, the opening principles when it comes to thinking about inspiration and authority. The first thing is this, and it seems obvious, but it's important for us to say. The Bible presents to us a faith that is essentially supernatural. And that is to say that according to Scripture, God has intervened extraordinarily in the course of the sinful world's development for the salvation of a world and a people that would otherwise be lost. The Christian faith comes to us through Scripture, not as the product of humanity's search for God, but as God searching for finding, forgiving, and restoring humanity. Why do I say that? This is why. If you take a history of religions approach to the Bible, you will, you will simply look at other religions and you will say, oh yeah, it's just like this religion's uh, holy book. But what we're saying is that the Christian faith and Christian scripture makes a totalizing claim. It makes a claim to ultimacy. It makes a claim to ultimacy based upon this idea that it's not we who climb to God, but God who comes to us. Humanity was rendered deaf, blind, dumb, calloused, and dead due to the fall and sin's effects on the entirety of our humanity, on the entirety of our being, on the entirety of our anthropology, our mind, our will, our emotions, our bodies, our hearts, every single aspect of us has been touched by sin. And all of this, I say all of this to make one simple point. Christianity is of necessity a revealed 
religion. To be more specific, the revealed religion. Now, when it comes to Revelation, it is true that God has revealed himself through his creation and through providence. We see this in passages of scripture like Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. We see that God reveals himself through his creation and through providence through Romans 1 where Paul says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. God reveals himself through creation and through providence. And that revelation is directed to all humanity and it is sufficient for us to be accountable to this God. However, general revelation is not sufficient for us to come to a knowledge of the saving work of Jesus Christ. It's not sufficient for us to apprehend the way of salvation. So, there is a need for special revelation. This is the distinction in revelation. General revelation, God's revealing of himself through creation and providence. And then special revelation is the interventional revelation of God in his redeeming acts which culminate in the work of Jesus Christ. Now, Scripture is a part of special revelation. And when I say that Scripture is a part of special revelation, what we mean to say is this. Not every single special revelation of God was written down in Scripture. In the Gospel of John, we learn as much. John says there were many other things that Jesus did, but these things have been written so that you may believe. God has, has intervened to reveal Himself. And Scripture captures a significant portion of the ways that God has intervened and it's specially pointed toward our understanding of what God has done to redeem the world. So now, this drills us down into the question more specifically. How are we to think about this special revelation of, of God which is known as the Scriptures? And for this, we need to turn to the Scriptures. As, as Glenn talked about last week, uh, we believe that the scriptures are self-attesting. It's, it's, it's part of the nature of making the case for an ultimate authority. Whatever is the final arbiter of truth, that is the ultimate authority. And so what we're suggesting is that in order to be consistent with our claim that scripture is ultimately authoritative, we have to turn to that ultimate authority in order to understand the nature of scripture. But first, I want to offer an important reflection by way of a sort of introduction tip into our theme. And, and this is what I want to get into. Did, did God really say? Our struggle with God's Word. Now this is one of those old school paintings. Does anyone want to venture a guess as to what we're looking at? Adam and Eve, you got it. And a colorful snake. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, the first recorded uh, experience of, the, of human beings was listening to God's word. That was it. That was the first experience of human beings 
relative to God, was listening to his word. And in that experience, humanity learned their fundamental task as human beings. They learned their purpose. They learned their, their reason for being. And that was to fill and subdue the earth. And, and it's important to note that even in the state of perfection, humanity needed God's word. Even then, before the fall, humanity needed God's word. Now, in Genesis chapter 2, God supplies food for Adam and authorizes him to eat from every tree in the garden. But he adds a negative command that Adam is not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is just rehearsal for some of you, I know that. But it's important because we're going to make a, a very significant point by way of an opening reflection for you. The ultimate issue that will determine the course of Adam and Eve's life and the course of the created world from that point on will boil down to this one question. What will they do with the word of God? That is going to be determinative in the narrative. What will Adam and Eve do with the word of God? We're in suspense. Enter the serpent. Enter the serpent. The, the narrative of Genesis 3 underscores the centrality of God's word. And this talking serpent enters into a dialogue with the woman. God had told Eve, along with Adam, to have dominion over the lower creation. They were not to listen to the word of an animal as if it were God's. So, Satan, speaking through the serpent sought precisely to overturn the system of authority that God had instituted. And I want you to look at his approach to creating chaos and ruin and sin and death and alienation and shame and fear and every evil you know of. The way in which those, those terrible things were introduced into the world, the way that Satan sought to bring these things about, was by attacking their trust in and obedience to the word of God. It's that simple. That was the hinge point. That was the crux of the matter. Satan says, how can I bring this beautiful, captivating, glorious world into ruin? I will bring the word of God into question and disrepute in their minds until I dislodge them from the authority of God. Simple. His first goal was to raise questions about the word of God. He brings doubt and confusion to Eve's understanding of God's word. He starts by stating an error as if it's fact. Now I want you to picture this. Eve's mind in her own business in the garden. Adam is chilling. They're in the garden. And then I want you to picture the serpent coming up behind and saying, without even, even looking them in the eye, just looking out over this beautiful, picturesque garden, the serpent says, wow. And to think that God said you can't eat from any tree in the garden. Just prodding them a little bit. See what comes back. Get them engaged in the dialogue. We also need to notice the way in which the serpent's cleverly framed, cleverly, cleverly, Framed exaggeration of any tree 
forced Eve to think about God's word as restrictive. It's a shame to think you can't eat of any tree. Now, he's exaggerating. But what he's trying to do is he's trying to get her to think of God's word as restrictive. To think of God as holding out. To think of his word as it shapes me. He causes her to focus singularly on God's prohibition. And it's clear that this limitation is on the forefront of her mind based upon her response. What's her response? Do you remember what Eve says? She says, God said, you must not eat from it or touch it. Now, now the limitation is starting to run wild in her mind. Because God never said you can't touch it. But in her mind, it's already, the limitation is already blowing up. She's exaggerating the idea of God's limitations on her to the point that she has begun to think that God's word is harsh, or worse yet, unfair and not good. And as the serpent reminds Eve of her restriction, he also causes her to be reminded of the penalty for disobedience. You shall surely die. But notice that Eve does not state the penalty in the same way that God stated it. God said, you will surely die, but Eve says, lest you die. It may seem insignificant at first glance, but there's something deeper going on in the way that she restates this penalty for disobedience. Some uh, Hebrew grammarians will, will suggest that what's happening here is that she actually seems to interpret God's clear prohibition as only the warning of another expert. So, sort of like, you know, you go to a doctor and they tell you something you don't want to hear. And then you say, I'm going for a second opinion. She, she, this is the way that she kind of states it. That God was, was not issuing a divine command grounded in sheer authority, but was offering a suggestion. She conveys it as a recommendation. And then the serpent makes an outright assault on God's word. You will not surely die. Have you ever thought about the different ways that he may have said it? You won't surely die. Come on, you won't surely die. How does he play her? I don't know. But his words are a direct contradiction of the word of God. He claims by this statement to have a truer understanding of reality than God does. He flatly contradicts the word of God and then he feeds them the great lie. That disobedience to the word of God will bring positive blessing. For God knows in the day that you eat of it, you'll be like him. It will be amazing. Disobedience will be so amazing. If you reject the word of God, you'll be so free. This is the lie that has plagued humanity from the beginning. There is no punishment for disobedience, but rather benefit. Eve couldn't combat the destructive, life-stealing word of Satan... Because she let go of and ceased to trust in the faithful, life-giving word of God. She was helpless because she let go of God's word. Their vulnerability to sin, death, and destruction was directly correlated to their drift from the word of God. They resist and reject the authority of God as they allow the importance, the centrality, the goodness, and truthfulness of God's word to disappear from view. In effect, this is what's happening. They choose an inferior, evil, and false word to rule them. They choose a lesser word and align their lives to that. 
Now, if I were Jesus, I would stop right here and say, let those who have ears hear. And I would leave you in the tension to sit with that. But I'm going to make it plain. Genesis 3 reminds us of the importance of this study and the disposition of our hearts as we come to this study. This is important, y'all. The fundamental determinative question for us is the same today as it was for Adam and Eve. What will we do with the word of God? The issue of God's word and our response is nothing short of a life and death matter. That is not hyperbole. Your response to the authoritative word of God is what makes the difference between shame and glory. Guilt or acquittal. Chaos or order. Ruin or redemption. Alienation or communion with God and the community. Fear or security. Future judgment or future joy. There's an ultimacy here as it relates to our response to the word of God. And so I open up with this reflection to say that these things that we're thinking about are, are critical. This is like foundational. This is the principia. These are the original axiomatic principles of the Christian faith. So now let's get into it. God speaks. What does scripture say about scripture? What does it say? What does the Bible claim to be? Hebrews says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. The writer of Hebrews seems to indicate that in scripture, God speaks. Theologian John Murray says this, the doctrine of scripture must be elicited from scripture just as any other doctrine should be. If the doctrine of Scripture is denied its right of appeal to Scripture for support, then what right does any other doctrine have to make this appeal? Makes sense. Jean Carvin? <laughs> scripture exhibits fully as clear evidence of its own truth as white and black things do of their color, or sweet and bitter things do of their taste. Let this point therefore stand, that those whom the Holy Spirit has inwardly taught truly rest upon Scripture. And that scripture, indeed, is self-authenticated. Just to cover our bases, Glenn may have mentioned this last week, but I want to mention it again. This is important. We are ultimately persuaded of the inspiration and authority of scripture, not by all of the sophisticated arguments that we marshal, not by a bunch of evidence or data, but rather... We come to trust in the inspiration and authority of Scripture in the same way that we come to trust in Jesus Christ. By the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness to us that His Word is true. And the facts of history and sociology and all of the common grace study that we can do, they bear out the truthfulness and reliability of Scripture. But you don't cross that line to trusting in the word of God apart from the inward work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. This is to say that it's by reading scripture under the influence of the Holy Spirit rather than by skill and logic that trust in God's word is born and nurtured. But it's still important that we think through these matters of scripture and, and how the scripture bears witness to its own character. 
that it has a view of itself, a view of its own inspiration and authority. So what I want to do now is I want us to cover what it is that Scripture communicates about itself. What are the main lines of this self-view of Scripture? There are four that I want to hit. You can hit others, but these are the four main ones that I want to hit. First, there is evidence in the Old Testament of a canonical self-consciousness, a recognition that what is written is given by God to rule and direct His people. A canonical self-consciousness in the Old Testament. Now, this is already indicated by the fact that written documentation accompanies the covenant relationship between God and His people, and it's intended to rule and direct their lives. We could pull out all kinds of scriptures that, that, that testify to this, but let me just pull one. Look at it. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 9 through 10. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hands, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers. When you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law. When you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So what we're saying is that God's covenant relationship with humanity was attended by written documentation. That was meant to order and govern God's people because they understood it to be written by the finger of God. The Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Moses goes up, they're written with the finger of God. It don't get more self-authenticating than that. All right? The rest of the books of the Old Testament are written in various ways. An exposition of this authoritative, canonical covenant word. And it's, it's out of this that the confidence flows with the other words of Scripture. The prophetic words that have confidence saying, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. New Scripture is written in the confidence that it is indeed Scripture because of its relationship to what God has already given. Meaning, God gives His Word, written, and then God gives prophets to elaborate on what was written and to call the people back in their specific situations to the word that was revealed. So the, the, the prophets speak authoritatively and even write authoritatively on the authority that the people had departed from. That's the first one. The Old Testament has a canonical self-consciousness. The second the New Testament maintains a clear recognition of the divinely given canon we know today as the Old Testament. So not only does the Old Testament identify itself as scripture written by God through human beings, but the New Testament also testifies to the authority and the, the scripture-ness of the Old Testament. The New Testament's use of the word scripture and such expressions as the law and the prophets it is written, God said, and Scripture says, abundantly illustrate this fact. Both Jesus and the apostles use Scripture in a normative, a normative canonical way. To say it's normative means it's law. It has the force of divine authority. They see it as normative, canonical. That's Jesus and the apostles. For Jesus as well as the apostles, the appeal to the Old Testament settles all matters. 
It's the final court because of its canonical status for God's people. To the New Testament authors, the Old Testament is God's word. But we gotta, we got to draw an organic connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament, recon, recognizing the oneness that the two have in order to communicate something of the authority of the New Testament, the, the canonical self-consciousness of the New Testament as well. So that's third. Okay, This is third. There is in the New Testament a consciousness among the authors as a whole that the authority of their writing is on par with that of the Old Testament and that the content of the revelation given to them is in some sense even superior to that Old Testament revelation, not in terms of inspiration, but in terms of the clarity and progress of the revelation that's revealed. It comes, progressive revelation builds steam, it builds steam, and the shadow gives way to the reality. And in some sense, the apostles felt the the weightiness of their own writings and, and testimony to Jesus Christ as even more supremely significant in redemptive history. Where do I get that? Ephesians chapter 3, listen to this. Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He's acknowledging the limitations of the old, and he's saying something new and more profound has burst, and we get to bear witness to that. There's something very significant, authoritative, in our testimony. The consciousness and the apostolic writings is tantamount to a deliberate addition to the canon in order to bring it to completion in the light of Christ's coming. Did you hear that in what, in what Paul just said? It's a deliberate addition to existing canon in order to bring the entirety of canon to its culmination, to its fulfillment, to its consummation. In this sense, the New Testament as canon is virtually demanded by the coming of Christ. If the older revelation, which was fragmentary, Hebrews 1, was inscripturated, that means it was put into written form, how much more is inscripturation to be expected in the consummation of revelation? I didn't mean to make that rhyme, but there's the black preacher coming out, y'all. I say that every time I teach. Every time I teach. Now, We find hints of this self-consciousness adding to scripture, to canonical scripture. We find hints of this this self-conscious addition to canon throughout the New Testament. Now, here's the deal. It's subtle, but almost commonplace. It's it's assumed. And we're not, it's important for for us to say this. This, 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 This inspiration and our understanding of inspiration, we don't try to just proof text it with a few isolated passages. It is through the entire New Testament corpus. And it shows up in subtle ways, but significant ways. For example, 
In John's Gospel, he introduces Old Testament quotations with the words, it is written. He does this. This is a convention in the Gospel of John. It is written. It is written. It is written. He uses this device a lot. And it's in reference to the authoritative scriptures of the Old Testament. It's a phrase that one New Testament scholar says in the New Testament puts an end to all contradiction. But then check this out. John uses a similar expression in the conclusion of his gospel. These are written. And in context, this allusion is not accidental. He's suggesting that what he has written is on par with what is written. He sees a, 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 a connection there in terms of authority. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 2 through 3 argue from lesser uh, authority of the law given through angels to the greater authority of the gospel given through the preaching of the apostles. But if the apostles' spoken word was regarded as the word of God, no less will be their written word. Now check it out, just so you can see it. Look at 1 Thessalonians 1, 4-5 and 2.13. I just want you to see the connection. It's, it's not even the major point that Paul's making. It just slips out. Listen, he says, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Now, farther down in the letter, this is what he says. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, which was just defined, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is. The word of God, which is at work in you believers. Do you see that? Paul sees his teaching, the newness that he is bringing in the preaching of the gospel and the exposition of who Jesus is. He sees that not as the words of men, but as the word of God. It's subtle, but it slips out. In 2 Thessalonians 3.14, this is another important one. Paul aligns his written teaching with the law of the old covenant. And, and the way that Paul lines it, lines it out is to reject his teaching, to, to reject what he has written, is, a, is akin to rejecting the Old Covenant commandments and, and requirements. It's, it's, it's under the same threat. When you, when you reject what Paul says, the way he communicates it is similar to the way that people fell under the consequences, under the cursing of breaking the Old Covenant. He says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. This, my friends, is what we call excommunication. It's a judgment that is laid upon those who are rejecting his authoritative word. Why? So that they can be reclaimed. They feel the sting of, of being outside of the community and they repent and come back. But what you need to understand is that Paul is simply echoing what is said in the Old Testament with reference to the covenant. It's, a, it's, a, it's an echo. And this is why the apostolic letters are read alongside the Old Testament and on par with the Old Testament. The same canon consciousness emerges in the opening and closing sections of the book of Revelation. This is another important one, all right? It is assumed that the book will be read in public. Now, first of all, God, John is told to write down the revelation. Write this authoritative word down. And then when he writes it down, when you read the beginning of the book of Revelation, it's meant to be read out loud in the churches. He assumes that. 
both reader and hearer are promised blessing. That is divine covenantal benediction. When you hear blessing, I know you might have grown up in church with, you know, church mothers and say, oh, it's a blessing. It's a blessing. You know, we have neutered and tamed the word blessing. Blessing is distinctly referring to covenant. You are blessed in the covenant through obedience to the covenant. You are cursed in the covenant for disobedience to the covenant. Blessing and cursing are distinctly covenantal. But what John does in the beginning of his letter that he expects to be read throughout all the churches as authoritative is he says, responding to what I say because it's authoritative will bring you covenant blessing. You can only say something like that if you believe that your words are on par with divine authority. And at the end of it, he says, anyone who adds to or takes away from this word, he, he pronounces what is essentially cursing. You can see the text right there. It's not a simple threat. It is canon consciousness. It's deliberately echoing the warnings of the Old Testament canon like Deuteronomy 4.2. Now listen to this. Listen to this. I'm going to read Revelation 22. And then I'm going to read you Deuteronomy 4. And then you tell me what's what. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Deuteronomy, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Sound? Sound? Yeah. You see what, you see what John's doing? He's like, what I write, what I have written is, is the word of God. And that's why it carries that the weightiness of the sanctions and the blessings. The book of Revelation assumes the authority that it maintains for the Old Testament itself. Fourth and finally, in the New Testament, we also notice that some sources not only express a sense of their own canonical character, but also the existence of a class of literature sharing that status. Classically, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. This is what the writer of this letter says. And count the patience of our God as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. By saying the other scriptures, he is saying that what Paul has written is scripture. Do you see that? Okay. So we have confirmation here of the fact that Paul's letters were placed on par with the Old Testament. And it's even possible, some New Testament commentators suggest, that Peter's phrase, the other scriptures, doesn't just refer to the Old Testament scriptures, but to the other apostolic writings as a class. But can we dig any deeper to understand why 2 Peter recognizes Paul's letters as scripture? I think so. It seems that formally the answer lies in the recognition of Paul's apostolic office and its significance. Apostleship existed in order to give scripture to the church. That's why apostleship was instituted by Jesus. This is the thrust of several of Jesus' statements in his farewell discourse in John, the Gospel of John chapters 14 through 17. 
The apostles were designated as plenipotentiaries. Somebody say $10 word. <laughs> a plenipotentiary is somebody who operates in the authority on, of another in, in their place. It's like when I tell my son, Elijah, the good son, the obedient son, go tell Lorenzo I'm going to break him off if he don't stop all that yelling and acting a fool. And Elijah walks into the room and he says, Dad said, you better stop jumping around like a fool. He walks in as my plenipotentiary. That's a place. He has the authority of Dad. Now, Lorenzo can continue to act a fool if he wants, but Elijah bears the authority and he communicates in my stead. And that is, is important for us to see in the way that the, the apostles operated. In God's place, on God's behalf, they bore his authority. They were invested with his full power and authority. John, now, 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 I want you to see this. This is something that Jesus was telling us was coming when we read the, the, the farewell discourse in the Gospel of John. Look at this. We're going to run through these. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Why? They stand in my place. They're in my behalf. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. He's talking about the intimate relationship between himself and his representatives, his apostles. John 14, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. He's telling the apostles that the Spirit is going to bring back to them what they need to communicate to the church in order to bear witness to who he is and to give direction and instruction to the church. John 15, but when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. John 16, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will declare to you the things that are to come. Jesus is setting them up to be his plenipotentiaries, particularly as it pertains to bearing witness in Scripture. The apostles were called precisely for the purpose of being witnesses of Jesus. They were vehicles of new revelation which was written down. And therefore conscious to a degree of, of the fact that they were adding to the already received canon of Scripture. This is not to say that every book in the New Testament was written directly by an apostle. But we have no reason to believe that any book emerged from outside of the apostolic circle. Okay, We have no reason to believe that. So let me summarize the four points, y'all. We can summarize by saying that a canonical self-consciousness... A consciousness of belonging to a divinely given canon is inherent in both the Old and New Testaments. This is the Bible's view of itself. Now, any quick questions? Yeah, absolutely. 
I, I like to envision that I never leave it when I step up into the, when I step to the plate. That is definitely, absolutely what our pastoral staff and what our team believes is that we operate under the authority of Christ. And as preachers of his word, which we're coming to, we also stand in that place and bear witness as we are faithful to scripture. Yes. What's the apostolic circle that you talk about? It seems very close to the apostles, apostolic circle. Yeah, I, I think that what New Testament scholars would say are those who were directly under the care and um, shepherding of the apostles. They were a part of the apostolic band and mission. So they went out with the apostles. You could say someone like Barnabas. You could say someone like Timothy. You could say someone like Apollos. These figures who were intimately connected to the apostles and they, they were with them in their teaching and in their ministry. I, I think that would, that's what we would call the apostolic circle. Good question. All right, I'm going to move on. What time is it? Uh, let me get going on this and I'll give you a break. The inspiration of Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. B.B. Warfield says the Bible is the word of God in such a way that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. It doesn't get much clearer than that, right? The historic description of Scripture as inspired means not that it is inspiring, though it is. You know, like an artist gets inspired. That's not what inspiration means. It means that it is God-breathed. It's a translation of the word. It's an attempt to reflect the word theopneustos in 2 Timothy, which means God-breathed. It's a product of the Creator Spirit's work, always to be viewed as the preaching and teaching of God Himself through the words of human witnesses. God is preaching through the human witness. God is speaking through the human witness. God is directing through the human witness. That's inspiration. It's talking about the divine origin of Scripture. It's not referring to the inbreathing of God either into the authors or into the text of Scripture in terms of manner, but source. That's important. Inspiration isn't the manner, it's the source. Basically think when, when you hear the Scriptures of God breathe, here they, are, they, they have God as their origin. Okay? Both Testaments view the words of Scripture as God's own words. Old Testament passages treat Moses' law as God's utterance. New Testament writers view the Old Testament as a whole as oracles of God, prophetic in character, written by men whom the Spirit moved and taught. Christ and the New Testament constantly quote Old Testament texts, not merely as recording what men, such as Moses or David or Isaiah, said through the Spirit, but also as recording what God has said through men or what the Holy Spirit says. This is how they frame it. Paul's citing of God's promise to Abraham and threat to Pharaoh as the utterance of Scripture, he, he, he says this is, this is the case for both. It shows how completely he equated statements of Scripture with the words of God. And when Paul taught and commanded in Christ's name, claiming Christ's authority because he was Christ's apostle, and maintaining that both his content and his words were spirit-given, he presented a paradigm of apostolic inspiration that requires the same attitudes toward the New Testament writings as were had to the Old Testament writings, that New Testament writers had to the Old Testament. 
He was claiming that for himself as he spoke on Christ's behalf. As scripture, being God-given, cannot be broken, so with apostolic testimony, whether oral or written, it is the guaranteed truth of God, which those who know God and are of God will hear. We get that from Jesus, right? Only those who are from God actually hear the authoritative word. It was no more necessary that the Bible being human should be wrong sometimes than it was for Jesus being human to go astray in conduct or teaching sometimes. You see this? This is important. You can't assume any more than you can assume that Jesus was fallible and, and, and sinful. You can't assume that of Scripture just because it is divine and human. There are distinctions between incarnation and inscripturation. There's still something helpful to think about in terms of the humanity and the divinity of them. Those who confess a sinless Christ cannot consistently dismiss this analogous belief in an inspired Bible. But how exactly did God communicate Scripture through the media of human authors? We will come to that after break. All right, let's bring it back. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your goodness. We pray. That's a youth ministry trick. Y'all are supposed to be... I'm starting. How exactly did God communicate Scripture through the media of human authors? There are five primary views of the nature of inspiration. You ready? The mechanistic, the dualistic, the dynamic, the actualistic, and the organic. Five primary views of the nature of inspiration. The mechanistic view. Now look, this, is, this has to do with the question of how exactly did God speak through these authors? How, how did the message get from God to them? First view, the mechanistic view, also has been called the dictation view. It believes that there was a sort of heavenly dictation. That the human authors were sort of sitting there with their pen and their notepad and God said, say this to them. What God has put together. What God has put together. Let no man tear asunder. Let no man tear asunder. Like, that's the dictation view. There's one caveat, though, to this is that we actually do have examples in Scripture where there is a dictation. For example, Exodus 34, 27. But on the whole, virtually no one holds this view today. Because it's not, it doesn't have a sufficient dynamism to it. We get the sense that it doesn't take into consideration the unique personalities of each of the authors that seem to come through so clearly. Next is the dualistic view, and, it's, and in this view, inspiration remains limited to a part of the Bible. It's applied to the Bible's religious, ethical content. The rest is viewed as being entirely the product of human beings. It is said that any shortcomings belonging to the uninspired sections uh, don't affect the religious, ethical content, but only the religious, ethical content is really inspired. So it treats parts of the scripture as kernel and, and a lot of it as husk that you just tear off and you get rid of it. The problem is that it views certain books 
as inspired and others as not. It destroys the unity of Scripture. And, and here's the deal. Remember, we keep coming back to this thing. We have to think about Scripture in the way that Scripture talks about itself. Christ and the apostles never divided Scripture like this. We, ne- we don't get any hint from Christ or the apostles that they did not view these portions of Scripture as inspired and authoritative. Okay? This leaves us to kind of pick and choose what's inspired based upon our own insights, our own sensibilities, or, or whatever. All right? The dynamic view. This view had a great deal of in, influence, and it places more of the onus of the inspiration of Scripture on the authors. Okay? Like they, they just lived closer to God. They, they were more righteous. They, had, they experienced more of the Spirit, and so they had more to say. It was like the, the super saints. You know what I'm saying? And the, there's only a difference in degree and not in essence between this type of inspiration and the illumination shared by every Christian. It's not an altogether different category. It's just a difference of degree. The New Testament writers were not the only inspired authors in the church, according to this view. But they were the first ones. In essence, inspiration of, of these scriptures are of, of just a difference in degree from those books in your Christian bookstore. Some of them. It's just a difference of degree. It's not a different category altogether. This view is in conflict with what Scripture says about itself as categorically distinct. Remember, God breathed, God originated. And there's also often a, a verbal or lexical confusion with inspired. Remember, Scripture does not mean by inspired what people today mean by inspired. That they just felt it. It just got good to them. They were in the moment. That's not what inspiration means. We need to distinguish between the guidance that all of God's children receive through the Holy Spirit, the illumination of the Spirit. So when you get into a text and the Lord's working in your heart, that's what is called illumination. That is something distinct from inspiration. And we need to maintain both of those because both of those are maintained in Scripture. The actualistic view. Now listen, I'm just covering my bases here because we've got to dial this up a little bit. You just need to be aware of it. Karl Barth was a giant in the world of theology. He remains a giant to this day. All around uh, the globe, in academic circles of theology, Karl Barth is recognized as the most weighty and important theologian in the 20th century. And he held to a theological system called neo-orthodoxy. If you want to know more about that, talk to Duke. Um, <laughs> But here's the deal. On this view, the inspiration of the Bible is a recurrent divine decree. And what that means is this. Inspiration happens in discrete moments as different Christians come to the Bible. And in a moment with a text, all of a sudden, this merely human book becomes inspired. And God speaks. Whenever it pleases God to speak to someone through the Bible, at that very moment, Scripture becomes inspired. The word of God. If God does not inspire the text in a given moment, that Bible that you hold is simply the words of man. The problem in this view of inspiration is a sporadic act of God rather than a fixed condition of the Bible is what inspiration means. But inspiration is not communicated to us 
in passages like 2 Timothy 3, it's, it's, we get nothing of this idea that the Bible just sporadically, at times, be, it becomes the Word of God. It is a status that is declared about the Word of God. It is the Word of God. It doesn't become the Word of God. Would we really want to say that two people could come to the same text in different moments and have different experiences as it pertains to encountering an inspired text? Because it would be completely possible that you would sit down with Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, and you would encounter inspiration. And I would sit down and it would be womp, 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 womp. Because of the sporadic nature of it. This is why we have to reject this view. It also confuses the distinction between inspiration and illumination. Now we come to the organic view, which is the view that we hold. And this view maintains that the entirety of Scripture is to be heard as God personally speaking, but it makes room for the individuality and personal activity of each of the human authors. Check it out. This is, this is, this is much more satisfying. God providentially superintends the lives, the experiences, and circumstances of the biblical authors in preparing each to serve as media of inscripturation. Everything, in other words, everything in their lives matters. Nothing in their lives is extraneous to the way that God uses them to communicate his word. The Spirit didn't reject the particularity of the individual human authors, but he embraces those particularities, <clears throat> redeems those particularities for the purposes of communicating his word. God's revelation has entered into the human context into persons and states of being, into forms, languages, genres, and usages, into history and life. What's that sound like? It sounds true to Scripture. It sounds incarnational. It sounds like God's way. Though they are not identical parallels, again, there is a helpful correspondence between incarnation and inscripturation. I love these two quotes. This sums it up. Okay? Herman Bovink says this, Dutch theologian. Having prepared the human consciousness of the authors in various ways, by birth, upbringing, natural gifts, research, memory, reflection, experience of life, revelation, etc., he now, in and through the writing process itself, made those thoughts and words, that language and style, rise to the surface of that consciousness, which could best interpret the divine ideas for persons of all sorts of rank and class from every nation, and age. This next quote puts it even more clearly. If God wished to give his people a series of letters like Paul's, he prepared a Paul to write them. And the Paul he brought to the task was a Paul who simultaneously would write just such letters. I love this. It does not, God doesn't get rid of our, 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 our humanness. He redeems it. He catches it up. He dignifies it. In the inscripturation, in the way that he does in all other areas of life, right? This is not, God's way is not mechanical. God's way is not this hit and miss within different books of, within the Bible. This is not, this is not God's way. God's way is not different by degree. It's, it's an altogether different category. It's organic. Organic's not the best word, but it's the most useful word we got. 
Now, how do we support this? There are plenty of indications in the Bible to support the accuracy of this organic view. The books of the Bible bear the imprint of their emergence at a specific time and in a specific culture. When you read through the Bible, you get the sense that people's culture actually mattered to the way that the scriptures were written. They have a different flavor to them. The writers had at times been prepared for their tasks through descent and education. Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. That mattered. Paul had been taught by rabbis. He was raised in the Pharisaic school, yet was Hellenistically adept in terms of culture. And who Paul was really mattered in the way that God used him to communicate what he wanted to say. It was, there's something very powerful about that. The choice of words and manner of expression of these writers reveal an incredible variety, strongly suggesting that it actually mattered who the writers were and their uniquenesses. In the original languages, this is even more apparent than in the various translations. For example, at the beginning of his gospel, Luke mentions that he first carefully investigated everything. You know what that suggests? His research and personal approach mattered in the formation of his gospel. He was a doctor. He had to do his research. That's where he was coming from. But we also see personal experience reflected in, in other books of the Bible. This is especially true in the Psalter. You get something very personal, emotional. The experiences of, of the, the psalm writers mattered. We see the unique personality of Paul in his letters. Look, read Philippians. The personal experiences that he had with these people mattered for the way that God communicated his word that benefits us today. Also Galatians. Where Paul got a little hot under the collar. And he started cussing folk out. You know what I'm saying? Alright, this is, this, is, this is, but it mattered. It mattered. The entire Bible contains the same unified, compelling message. Yet, this unified message is expressed in diversity. And what does that sound like? God. Unity and diversity. It makes sense that the God who is unity and diversity, the triune God, would communicate his word through unity and diversity. Makes sense. It's coherent. There are striking differences in the prophetic books of the Old Testament. There's variation in the apostolic epistles. It's not insignificant that Paul was called the apostle of faith, Peter the apostle of hope, and John the apostle of love. This approach gives us a richer, more honest, more compelling understanding of inspiration that coheres with the redemptive message that it communicates. There's synthesis between the mode of communication, inspiration, and the actual inspired content. Human authors were not senseless tools, but people who were holistically employed by God with all of their functionalities and potentialities. This does justice to the Bible as the word of God in human language. But what would be the benefit of a correct understanding of the books of the Bible and the miracle of inspiration if we did not listen to its message as authoritative. This brings us to our next point, the authority of Scripture. John Calvin says, the Bible is the scepter by which the heavenly king rules his church. I like that. The authority of Scripture, its self-attestation, autopistis, needs to be maintained not only over against Roman Catholicism, which does esteem the Bible as the church's book. Remember, Glenn talked about it just lands the authority of Scripture in a different place. 
But it also needs to be maintained over against those who consider the Bible to be an ordinary book, a collection of human documents originating in a certain period of history. Just, just you know, ordinary stuff. As a consequence of the developments that have happened over the past few centuries, many no longer believe in the authority of Scripture. Surprise, surprise. Biblical criticism has also had an impact by raising doubts with respect to the reliability of Scripture. Acquaintance with other religions in our day, right? Globalization. It leads people to believe that, oh yeah, Christianity has a faith and it has its holy book, and Islam is a faith and it has its holy book, and yeah, you know, this is the same, same deal. It's all this part of the same thing. In addition, our cultural moment finds people with an aversion to believing anything on the basis of authority, especially things that offend our existing ideas. You're familiar with this idea of confirmation bias, right? Where we, we only want to listen to things that confirm what we already agree with. And when you are sinful, selfish, and arrogant, you look for the things that confirm you and bury you more deeply into your pride and arrogance and selfishness. What other explanation do we have for the way that things are in the world? This is just a reality. Again, the self-authentication of Scripture implies that we appeal to Scripture itself to establish the authority of Scripture. And again, it's not just from you know, isolated proof texts that we establish the authority of Scripture. It is from the entire, the entire corpus of Scripture. It is in the water. It's, just, it's, just, it's there everywhere you turn in subtle ways as well. But it seems like I was thinking about this. I was like, okay, how do you... What might be a useful way to approach the authority of Scripture? And I thought this. Many people respect the, the historical figure, Jesus Christ. Even non-Christians do. So I thought, what, what might it be like? Maybe it'll be helpful for us to think about, to talk about the way that Jesus related to the Scriptures as the authoritative word of God. How does Jesus deal with the issue of Scripture's authority? Now, I want us to look at this. What did Jesus think of Scripture? What authority did it have in his mind? Who himself spoke with authority. Jesus claimed authority. But how did Jesus deal with the authority of Scripture? The Old Testament was to Jesus not merely a collection of human writings. He accepted the authority of Scripture without reservation. It is written. To him, this was the question in every dispute. What do the scriptures say? In every conflict you see Jesus in, in the Gospels, what's he doing? He's dealing with people on the basis of an understanding of scripture. Their misunderstanding and his full understanding. This is the issue at, at all points. It's incorrect to suppose that Jesus' appeal to scripture would reflect no more than an acceptance of Jewish tradition or an uncritical adoption of contemporary outlooks or attitudes to the, to the Hebrew scriptures. This would be hard to believe because he invariably opposed the views of his contemporaries whenever necessary. Jesus didn't go along to get along. He wasn't, he wasn't that kind of guy. Not only does Jesus clearly appeal to the authority of the Old Testament, he makes forceful statements about himself as the central message and fulfillment of those authoritative scriptures. Now, we're going to cruise through a bunch of what Jesus said. Now, I'm going to give you a trigger warning. If all you know is the, the Care Bear version of Jesus, he only talks about love, 
<laughs> I don't know why. Y'all remember that old cartoon? Gummy bears bouncing here. And I, that's what I had in my head. Something's wrong with me, I know. My excuse for everything is I got four kids. That's, that's my problem. Just kidding, it's my blessing. I'm blessed by the best. Ain't got no need to stress or settle for less. Amen. What does Jesus think about the authority of Scripture? John 5. Listen to this. This is fire. This is when people, they step up to Jesus. They're expecting to hear some of them nice oh, love. And then they, when they get finished, their eyebrows are gone. And they ain't got no hair. They look like Fire Marshal Bill. Let me show you something, right? Some of y'all don't know nothing about that. Listen to Jesus. You, this is him battling with the religious leaders. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my father's name, i.e. read in my father's authority. And you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Do you see Jesus looks back and he issues an authoritative judgment on these religious leaders. He's making a truth claim about their destiny and their current spiritual situatedness. And not only that, Jesus not only looks back to the authority of the Old Testament, but he also connects his own authority to that authority. And he says they are one and the same. Luke 24 Two, two, two of uh, Jesus' statements in Luke 24. Remember, this is after the resurrection. The, the homies are, are, are down and out. They're sad. Jesus got the, the leader that they were really hoping in, got crucified, and that's all they knew. He was gone. The thrill was gone. Jesus shows up, and then they're like astonished. They're astonished. And then Jesus starts to drop knowledge on them. He says, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is a totalizing statement. All 22 books of the Hebrew scriptures, which is what you had in the Hebrew breakdown of the books, because... There was no first and second Samuel. It was just the books of Samuel. No first and second Kings. It was the books, book of Kings, Chronicles, one book. In the entire corpus, he says that they testify to me. This is the one who just stepped out of the grave authoritatively. Authoritative scriptures testify to the authority of Christ. Now let's follow it down. Then he said to them, now, 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 these guys are like, oh my goodness. Jesus, Jesus disappears. And then they look to each other after they're sitting down at dinner with Jesus. And they say, did not our hearts burn within us when he explained the scriptures to us? When he unfolded this to us? Then, they, then Jesus shows up again behind closed doors. 
He says to another group of disciples, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Remember, whenever you hear in his name, you're hearing authority beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. You hear this authority coming through Jesus use of scripture. How does Jesus use the Old Testament scriptures? He uses them to vindicate the central truth of the Christian faith that he was destined to suffer, die, and rise from the dead with all power in his hand to institute the new age of the kingdom. This is how he used scripture. If you're trying to make a cosmic claim about your identity, you don't appeal to something that doesn't have authority. <laughs> you, you weigh on that authority. Quick facts about Jesus' use of scripture. He knew the scriptures thoroughly, even to use words and verb tenses. He obviously had either memorized vast portions or knew it instinctively. He believed every word of scripture. All the prophecies concerning himself were fulfilled, and he believed beforehand that they would be based upon their authoritative declarations. Again and again, you'll hear Jesus say, it must be fulfilled. He even said this about his pending death. It, it has to happen. Because scripture says, because it is written. This is the way that the gospel writers detail the things that unfold, unfolded with Jesus. Jesus believed in the historical factuality of the Old Testament. Jesus, in the gospels, makes reference to Abel as a real individual. Noah and the flood as historical. Abraham and his story as historical. Sodom and Gomorrah as historical. He, he references all these things in the course of his teaching. Lot and his wife, Isaac and Jacob. He references in John 6 the manna that came down from heaven as a historical reality that he used to leverage his own identity as the bread from heaven. He's validating all these different sections of scripture. He's just, he's just peppering the entirety of the scriptures. The incident of Moses lifting the bronze serpent up in Numbers chapter 21. And he says, that was a picture of me. That thing that happened back there, that was a picture that was meant to help you understand who I am and what I came to do. The Jonah narrative, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish, so I will be in the belly of the earth and come up out. Daniel and Isaiah as historical. All of these are the ways that Jesus references scripture, speaks to scripture. He believed scripture was more powerful than his own miracles. He actually quoted scripture in overthrowing Satan in the wilderness temptation. If you are facing the evil one, the adversary, the enemy of every human soul and the chief cause of every bit of destruction in this world, you don't come at him with things that aren't authoritative like pew, 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 pew. Jesus stepped up with the word. That's what I imagine Jesus doing. He says, it is written. Uh. <laughs> I don't know no martial arts. 
Ah, tem gato puto, não Okay. You don't battle Satan with some weak mumbo jumbo. You bring authoritative words, and by virtue of those authoritative words, he bounced Satan authoritatively and thereby proved himself to be the fitting second Adam who could bring the kingdom and reinstitute the rule of God. He quoted scripture as the basis for his own teaching. His ethics were the same as what we find already written in scripture. He warned against replacing scripture with something else or adding to or subtracting from it. The religious leaders of his day had added their oral traditions and Jesus adds a warning to them to not add to or take away from the scriptures. Since Jesus is both perfect God and perfect man, he is both the most authoritative speaker and the most faithful hearer of the word of God. As human hearer and fulfiller of all righteousness, he speaks just what the Father teaches him. He doesn't question, he doesn't contradict, he doesn't hesitate. There's one time that you see Jesus bearing up under the weight of God's word to him. And that was in Gethsemane. When he faced the fury of God Almighty, bearing the sins of his people on his shoulders. And that's the one time. But even then he said, yet not my will, but your will be done. Tell me Jesus didn't have Psalm 22 in his mind. And all kinds of other scriptures that came bearing down in fulfillment in him. And he would indeed fulfill it. This is how Jesus responded to the word. None of this like, well, you know, it's kind of outdated. <laughs> Father, you really ought to update this. Because I don't like all this business pertaining to purity. I don't like it. Jesus, I, I, I mean, I mean, Father, I'm, I'm, I'm a single man. I'm young. You know, the honeys is around because I'm a good teacher. He doesn't do any of that. I'm just trying to contemporize this for y'all. Do you see? Jesus does not play with the Father's word. It's in him. It's in him. And the beauty and moral authority of his life just, it just is overwhelmingly brilliant. In the community of his disciples, his word is the supreme criterion for discipleship. Abide in my word. When he returns in glory, this one, when he returns in glory, Jesus will be ashamed of those who have been ashamed of him. Notably, he says, those who have been ashamed of his word. His mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. This is how Jesus is dealing with the word and the relationship to his word. In the Gospel of John, chapter 6, Jesus says, The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Five verses later, after everyone bounces, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, Y'all want to roll too? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. In John 8, Jesus identifies his own teaching with the words of God and insists that anyone who is of God will hear and obey them. Now listen to John chapter 12, because this is fire, fire. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. 
The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the father has told me. Remember, Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He's, this is the continuation of the unfolding story. And Jesus is drawing himself up into that. He is, he's connecting himself to that unfolding and developing revelation. And, at, and he's placing himself there as the apex. And he's saying, now everything that I'm saying to you is the full culmination of everything that God has been saying since the beginning. If you don't listen to me, my word will be your judge. He will judge all men in the last day as Messiah and King on the basis of his infallible word committed to writing by fallible men guided by the infallible Holy Spirit. Jesus submitted his own life to the authority of Scripture. He made provision for the New Testament by sending the Holy Spirit to abide with his apostles to direct them and guide them into all truth, to, to communicate with the same authority that he had conferred upon them. This leaves room for one conclusion, y'all. That the Lord Jesus Christ considered the canon of Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, as God's inspired and authoritative word written by the hand of men. To call Scripture into question is to call Jesus himself into question. To reject the authority of Scripture is to call Jesus' motivation, wisdom, and entire way of life into question. How can I say that Jesus validated the New Testament writings? Because we are told that it was by the Spirit of Christ that they wrote. We are told that Jesus through the Gospels was teaching his disciples in the final portion of his life that he was going to set them up to write the scriptures. It was Jesus who showed up in Acts. It was Jesus who showed up to Paul, blinding him on the road to Damascus, enabling him to be an apostle. Paul would say, as one untimely born, Christ finally appeared to me. Well, what was the purpose of, a, of, of apostleship? Remember, it was inscripturation. So Jesus makes allowances, he makes provision for the, the exposition of his person and work, the, the, the final chapter of God's long story to be disclosed. The authority of the word of God creates obligation in the hearer. And that's what we get from Jesus, that's what we get from all of God's word. That's what it means for it to be authoritative. For a word to be authoritative means that it creates obligation in the hearer. That was my choice in terms of approaching the authority of Scripture. There's so much more to say, but I think it's pretty powerful to think about the way that Jesus responded to Scripture. You know what? Even, even everyday people in D.C. who don't have any religious commitments would say that the life of Jesus was beautiful. They admired him as a teacher Ethically, his words about loving enemies, the way that Jesus is portrayed in Scripture. But can you not see that that life was the product of submission to the Word of God? You don't have a beautiful, compelling, winsome, astonishing, history-shaping life of Jesus without submission to the Word of God. Trust in the word of God. Embrace 
of the authority of the Father. Fearlessness in the face of threats and temptation that would try to get him off of submission to the authority of the Father. I think that could possibly be one of the strongest arguments for contemporary people like you and me to rethink the various ways that we balk at the authority of Scripture. I think that's one of the most compelling cases the more and more I think about it. People can talk all the junk they want about the, the Scriptures, but I'm going to ask you this. Show me a more beautiful, redemptive life than Jesus Christ, which is surely a vivid picture of what Scripture looks like when it is fully embraced and lived out. If you ever wonder, what will become of me if I submit to this word? Look at Jesus. It will be hard. People will oppose you. People will revile you and hate you. But you will be blessed. You will die. But you will be raised. And glory will be your inheritance. Look at Jesus and see the outcome of a life lived under the word of God. Here are some final thoughts in conclusion. You and I need the word of God desperately to guide us, to comfort us, to contradict us, to humble us, to encourage us and renew us. And some of the things that you can take away from tonight, from this three weeks of study, if it seems blunt, I was in the final moments. It was the final countdown. I was trying to get this conclusion written, so don't take it as blunt. But if it needs to sting a little bit, that's okay. Take Sunday worship and the preaching of the word seriously. Like your very life depends on this heart-changing, soul-nourishing ministry of the word. I can't tell you how important that is. Don't be surprised at some of the disappointing things you see in your life if you do not relish the opportunity to sit under the preached word of God. I'm going to tell you a story. One of the highlights of my life was I got to preach in a house church in China. And it was, you know, drive down this street. Okay, we got to get out of this car, get into this car, going the other way. Then we got to go in this building, go up to the elevator, then come down the stairs and go. I was scared. I was like, for real though? Is it that serious? We finally showed up. uh, And there were eight people gathered in in someone's home. And they, they were ready to sing and worship and wanted to hear me preach. This was a long time ago. Um, And I started. I landed the plane at a half hour. And they were like, will you keep going? And I was like, I love you guys. (laughs) Yes, I will. I preached for another 15 minutes. They were like, can you keep going? I was like, yeah. I preached for another 15 minutes. And I was... Yes, keep going. (laughs) I started with the first chapter of Philippians and preached the whole book of Philippians, and it was three hours later. I was done with the book, and they were like, thank you. Thank you for bringing us God's holy word. And I was like, yo, this is so good and challenging that they longed for the word. 
Not because I'm a good preacher, but because they were hungry and they valued God's word. It was profound to me. They acted like people who needed that nourishment and longed for it and wanted to hear from God. And guess what? Their lives reflected it. Many of them had been to jail and back again. And they received it with joy. You know what they called jail? They called it seminary. <laughs> they did. Because that's where they learned to know Christ in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And I was blown away by that. Take Sunday morning worship and the preaching of the word seriously. Next, pray for your pastors as they bring you that word. There is no more needy group of people than those who are given the task of bringing God's word to God's people. There is no greater feeling of inadequacy at times than to sit before God's word and to try and preach it faithfully, compellingly, to try to address the needs of a, a group of people that is all over the spectrum at times, both spiritual diversity and ethnic diversity and educational diversity and different ages. It is, it is like the most impossible task it feels like at times. Sunday night, I can't tell you how many times preachers have the jokes back and forth with one another about how you're feeling on Saturday night. And it's just like, I'm going to have to pull this rabbit out of the hat, Lord. I don't know what to do with it. We need your prayers. Our preaching, if you think we stink and you don't pray for us, <laughs> you got to own some part in this. We need you to help us. Seriously, we need your prayers. And have you ever thought that that could be one of the most transformative things that happens in the life of the church? It's for a group of people to value the word and to love their pastor through prayer and for the pastor to be able to love their people and to be born up under that, that, that prayer and to be able to, to see the fruit of the kingdom coming to bear in the life of the church. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful symbiosis. You see that in Paul with his relationship with the congregations that he served. Pray for us. Uh, make a personal effort to understand scripture, to grow from children into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, as Paul put it. The information age and one-click book buying means that no Christian in our collective position, meaning Washington, D.C., making some money with some educational capacity and intelligence, none of us in this position should be found stuck in biblical illiteracy and theological ignorance. It's just there's no excuse for it. It's a, it's a choice that you make. I'm not saying, now this is important, y'all don't have to know the Bible like pastors do. It's our particular calling to spend a, a major portion of our lives and our weeks knowing and studying and thinking about the scriptures. But no matter where you're at, make it your aim that a month from now, six months from now, a year from now, you won't be where you are today. And that two years from now, you won't be where you're at today. That you will grow and know the word and that you will you will expect the Lord to work in your life as you give yourself to the word. Next, pray the word of God into your life. And read liturgically. Now, what I mean is this, 
a lot of people feel like their prayer lives are just lame, um, boring. It's just like, it's just the same humdrum thing. I totally get that. Been there. I know that intimately. And one of the best things for reviving your prayer life is sitting down with the scriptures open and praying through scripture. Pray it into your life. Pray it into the lives of your friends and your co-workers and your neighbors. Ask the Lord to bring these pages to life in your life. Ask the Lord to bring these pages to life in the life of your church. Pray John 17 for the church. Don't just gripe on social media about the lack of unity in the church. Pray John 17 for our local church. And then you're tapping into the power of God. You're inviting the power of God into the situation. And then read liturgically. What that means is read for the purposes of worship, not just information. Read for the purposes of worshiping the God who has given his word, who has revealed himself, who has made himself known. Read for the purposes of marveling in his goodness, in his grace, in his availability, in his presence with you. Read for the purposes of worship and ask God to just meet you there. Expect him to meet you there. He's promised that he will meet his people in his word. Read liturgically. Read for the purposes of cultivating a heart of worship and a life of worship and the practices of worship. Next, learn to handle God's word with care and accuracy, meaning come next week. Duke's going to tell you all about it. Interpretation of the Bible. Because remember, the authority of God pertains to his word rightly understood, not falsely understood. If you're leaning on the authority of God for a, for a God helps those who help themselves approach, that, that's not authoritative because that's not what the Bible teaches. All right. So learn to handle God's word with care and accuracy. As members of the church, we are part of a noble family containing many members who gave their lives in response to, in defense of, and for the spread of God's word. Let us live up to the family name. Follow that model of courageous faith and obedience. People like William Tyndale was burned at the stake. And it had everything to do with his desire to see the word of God given into the hands and languages, given into the languages of people so that they could have the Bible for themselves. And he was burned at the stake for it. Let us live up to that family name. When people aren't trying to burn us at the stake, they're trying to light us up on social media and you know in the workplace. But let's live up to our noble our noble family name. Those who will not revile when reviled and who will not step back off of the word of God and all of its beauty and fullness. Read Psalm 119 if you need convincing of the goodness and beauty of God's word. Powerful, powerful stuff. God's word is eminently trustworthy and authoritative. Respond in faith, hope, and love. Disabuse yourself of the lie that you will find a surer, truer, more life-giving word than God's. Don't be ignorant of the evil one's schemes, a la Genesis 3. I'll let the writer of Hebrews have the final word and then open up for questions. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature 
is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Amen. All right. Time for any questions. Don't be shy. You were almost there, baby. Come on, bring it. So you make a really compelling case for Christ's belief in the Old Testament as the inspired word of Scripture and the things that he's saying. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's a little bit of a jump to okay. he believes in the canonical nature of the rest of the New Testament. Got gotcha. you. Connect that. Yeah. Yes. Good question. Good observation. I was, I was rushing that. <laughs> so, uh, here's here's what I'm, I'm picking up. As we come to Jesus anticipating what his what his apostles are going to do, that John 17 thing where he talks about his giving of the Spirit for them to carry out his ministry. I think, uh, I think that another jump to is Jesus, if we are correct, that apostleship is given specifically for the purposes of inscripturation, then what he did with those disciples when he shows up in Acts chapter 1 and also when he shows up with Paul, who some scholars believe wrote you know, 13 letters of the New Testament, if Peter wrote Peter... We don't know who wrote Hebrews, somebody in the, in the mix. And John, writing the books of John and Revelation, I mean, you have essentially there, you work backward from that and you see the way that Jesus was prepping. And then it begins to, it's almost like the sixth sense, watching it for the second time. Have you seen the movie? Okay, the first time you see it. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> I'm sorry, if you ain't seen the sixth sense at this point, you just got to get spoiled, all right? The sixth sense. It's about this psychologist, right? He's a child psychologist. And he goes around helping little kids. Well, he has this one little boy who, uh, who's having real problems. And, and then finally, they have this breakthrough moment. You've probably heard the key phrase before. And he says, he says, what's wrong, bud? He says, I see dead people. I was like, oh, no, no. I'm going to have nightmares forever. Well... The twist comes at the end because we learn that the psychologist played by Bruce Willis is himself a dead person. What? <laughs> now, I'm traveling. I'm in, I'm in a hotel. I, I turn on the television. It's just starting. I said, I have to watch this. And I do not watch that movie the same. Because now I see all of the, I'm like, I know it's coming. Oh, I didn't see that. I didn't realize that. I think that the second reading is, and when we look at the second reading, when we think about the apostles retrospectively and what Jesus was doing and what Jesus was saying about what they were going to do and how it unfolded and witness bearing specifically in terms of, of the resurrection and, and the authority of Christ and what we see them doing, that's, that's the connection that I'm making in terms of Jesus as like strong jump back to Old Testament authority. And then what he does is he, he makes these anticipatory statements about the role of the disciples, about them binding and loosing, about their word, anyone who rejects them rejects him, and the intimate connection between Jesus and his apostles. 
And so if I, I can back that slide up for you, but that's what I was suggesting Jesus was doing and teeing it up for his apostles. Is that more of a connector? Thank you. That's a great question. Go ahead, Lumber. Yeah, like overly individualistic. Yeah, and also mm -hmm. yes. Yes, and I Duke. This is a great question. I, and Duke may touch on this next week, but about the nature of 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 the requirement for interpretive community. So one of the things that we do when we think about the church globally, when we look at contemporary interpreters, exegetes, we look at the historic understanding of passages in scripture. I think that very much so we look at the interpretive community to try and understand the way that it might work out in our current community. And I think um, I think that one of the things I appreciate about you know being a part of a, a an interpretive tradition is that it keeps you from being too idiosyncratic in the way that you understand a particular text. And so um, and then I would I would probably also say the, the way that script the way that the spirit worked in the church through history, which is basically what we're talking about when we talk about tradition, is also fair game for informing our own lives and the way that we interpret scripture for our own lives right now. So I I love reading the the old men and women uh, of the faith because I think that the way that they understand the faith informs the way that I understand the faith, and it ought to because the spirit was at work there just as much as it work here. And I think that a lot of what I'm praying for is not necessarily new discovery as much as it is faithfulness to the massive amount of information I already know. And so I think, I don't know, I'm rambling at this point. It's a good question. I don't know that I have a great answer to it, but those are some of the beginning thoughts around the idea. I'll have to give that some more thought. It's a good one. Hey, sis, go ahead. Um, Mm. Um, like I've been to churches before where you'll sit when the Old Testament is being read and stand when wow. the Old Testament is being read. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Like, how do you think about what that means in, as we're like interacting with the Old Testament? Great question. I may have misspoke, but if I run back to that slide, um, I think that what I was trying to communicate was. The apostles have in this sense that there was something even more profound about the revelation that they were giving, but never to be disconnected or even understood apart from. So we're not this hard discontinuity, uh, you know, hermeneutic. Okay? So there are two primary ways of, of interpreting the Bible in contemporary American evangelicalism. There is a, a way of approaching the connection between the Old and New Testament that says, unless it is specifically restated in the New Testament, it's disregarded. 
there's another way, which is the way we think about it, and it says, unless it is specifically repealed in the New Testament, it stays. So I don't mean to suggest that we hold this like overly dichotomistic view between the Old and New Testament. What I was trying to communicate is something of the essence of what, what it feels like the apostles feel this super dignified Almost like they have this, they hold this, this like incredible dignity to the fact that they're like, they are getting to, to inscripturate the revelation of Jesus Christ. Like, this is incredible. He was concealed back here, but he's revealed here. And I think that the fact that they were speaking directly, expositing directly the personal work of Christ, I think they felt, that's why they said it was hidden back then. Hebrews 1 and um, Ephesians 3. That's what I was trying to communicate, more than superiority. So, great question. Thank you for letting me clarify that. Klaassen. So that's specifically what I was addressing with this slide, with the dynamic view of inspiration, which sees inspiration of the scriptures as only different in degree rather than qualitatively different altogether. And what we would say is that the inspiration that we're talking about, remember the definition, theopneustos, it means God is the origin, the direct origin through the human writers. I would say that is no longer in play, but... Does God give us gifts? Can we, in communion with God, have a more beautiful vision that makes us write beautiful music or poetry or whatever? Sure. I would just want to reserve the, the language of inspiration, as we're intending it here, for something very unique. That's how I would respond. Without diminishing any of the beautiful things I'm sure you've written. <laughs> Listen, y'all, we at 904. I've got two quick announcements. Before you pray or after you pray, what do you prefer? Uh, before. <laughs> I learned so much tonight. I, I'm sure you did too. My, the favorite lesson that I learned tonight was when my preaching sucks, it's all y'all's fault. <laughs> You're not praying for me enough. All right? <laughs> also, also, if anyone complains about the length of Russ's preaching, you better be careful. He might move to China. <laughs> Will they appreciate him? No, I'm just kidding. All right, he, he, here's my point. You've been learning tonight. You learned last week. Uh, the question is, how does this change the way we read the Bible? Uh, how do you, 
take what Glenn was talking about last week, 66 books in the Bible, if all of those are indeed part of God's inspired authoritative word, if God's word is authoritative, if it is inspired, if it actually is uh, something that works through human cultures and human language, how do we read it? How do we understand it? Especially in an age where we're almost at this crisis point where people either just read the Bible in any way they want or have given up any hope that we can possibly interpret it with confidence and clarity. And maybe that's where you are at today. And that might be you even if you've been a Christian your entire life. So, come back next week. Um, it, it's the practical uh, so what lesson out of these three segments. It's going to be uh, just really practical teaching on a method of interpretation. What are principles of how we can interpret the Bible based upon all that you learned from Glenn and from Russ. We're going to do exercises. We're going to do real time, like scribbling on pieces of paper on the tables here, as I also teach you different principles that you can take home with you. It'll help the way you read the Bible. It'll help the way you listen to sermons. Uh, if for you, if you are new to the Christian faith, this will be fresh for you. If you're new to reading the Bible or if you've been reading it for years, a great refresher, you might even learn something new. So please do come on out next week. Cool? Excellent. Lift your hands and receive this blessing from the Lord. May the love of God our Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit rest, rule, and abide with you as you go from this place to live under his word. You're dismissed.